Hi there. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Arthritis Life Podcast, where we share arthritis life stories and tips for thriving with autoimmune arthritis. My name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis beyond joint pain. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years, and I'm also a mom, occupational therapist, video creator, support group leader, and I created the Room to Thrive self-management program. I am so excited to help you live a more empowered life with arthritis. We're going to cover everything from kitchen life hacks to navigating the healthcare system to coping with friends who just don't get it. Seriously, no topic is going to be off limits on this podcast. My interviewees and I share our honest stories of how chronic illness affects our lives. This includes discussions about mental health, sex, shame, pregnancy, body image, advocacy, self-acceptance, and so much more. You'll hear stories from all ends of the spectrum, from a person who's living in Medicaid remission from psoriatic arthritis to somebody living with severe mobility restrictions and severe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. You'll hear how people manage their conditions in different ways, like medications, mindfulness, movement, social support, work accommodations, and so much more. You'll also hear from rheumatology experts who just get it. We'll dive deep into the science behind chronic pain and what's the latest evidence for lifestyle changes that can help you thrive with arthritis, including exercise, sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, and more. This is your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. All right. I am so excited today to have Emily Taylor to help learn about or teach us about myalgic encephalomyelitis slash chronic fatigue syndrome, also known as MECFS. So welcome, Emily. I'm so happy to have you today. Thank you, Cheryl. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. And so just, just to get us started, um, can you let us know where you live and like, what is your relationship to MECFS? Absolutely. Um, so hi, everyone. My name is Emily Taylor. I'm the Vice President of Advocacy and Engagement for Solve ME or the Solve ME CFS Initiative. Um, we are a nonprofit organization, a national nonprofit international now, uh, dedicated to, um, to exclusively uh, post-infection diseases, specifically ME, CFS, and long COVID, um, which unfortunately are very related. Um, so uh, I'm calling in from Los Angeles, California, where I live. Um, and uh, I uh, am intimately familiar with this disease, both in my professional life as um, the VP of advocacy and engagement, um, also in my personal life, where I'm a caregiver for my mother, who's had MECFS since 2008. Yeah, and I think, you know, the fact that you've taken the experience with your mother and helped turn it into so much incredible, you know, advocacy and patient education work is really is really wonderful. And so, yeah, can you tell uh, a little bit more about your mother's experience, you know, with ME CFS and how that led to your current work? Absolutely. Um, it really is uh, one of those moments where I think the universe put me right where I was supposed to be. Um, I, back in 2008, I was working in Washington, D.C. I um, was on the Hill. I really enjoyed my job. And my mom um, went to uh, on a plane to uh, to visit her father. And um, on that flight, she uh, presented with a 104 degree fever. 
Um, by the time she got home, it just got worse and worse. Um, and we, uh, she immediately went to bed and that, um, that moment of going to bed ended up lasting about four years for the next four years. My mother was pretty much bed bound, um, due to the extended symptoms following what we believe to be a virus, um, that caught, prompted the initial fever. Um, she was at her worst, unable to eat solid food. Um, she was unable to move more than a few steps um, a day, um, really to the bathroom and back was as far as she was able to go. Um, she had such sensitivity to light and sound that we ended up covering her eyes and ears and, um, and restricting anyone from going into the bedroom or even watching TV in the room adjacent because it was that sensitive with the sensory sensitivities. And, um, and just, it was a constellation of symptoms that we didn't ha understand. And at the time there were very few medical doctors that were willing or able to help us. Um, her blood panel tests came back normal. And, um, and eventually we drove um, several hours to a, um, an endocrinologist that was recommended to us who um, sat down after four years of searching from doctor to doctors, this is in 2012, um, who said, uh, and I, I won't tell you her name because she said the, what she said is, I think you have this illness that we call chronic fatigue syndrome. The good news is it probably won't kill you. And the bad news is it probably won't kill you. And there's no FDA approved treatments. There's no um, there's no path that I can get put you on. Um, but what I want to do is she said, I'm not going to put this on your chart on your chart. I'm going to put that you have lupus, severe arthritis um at Hashimoto's Sjogren's and like a handful of other autoimmune diseases she said because then we can try the treatments from those um off label and that's what we've done and you know fast forward many years later um my mother is not uh not healthy she's not at her pre-illness levels but she um, is about 60% of where she was. Um, so she has for about every day, she gets out of bed now and can go work at her business and can, um, and can do things. She's um, mostly limited to the house, but can go out probably once or twice a week. And for every day she goes out, she has a day back in bed um, to rest and recover from that. So, um, so we've really expanded what we kind of refer to as her energy envelope, um, the mm -hmm. ability of to expend energy. We've managed to work through medication and a lot of trial and tribulation um, and a lot of uh, other um, non-medical treatments as well um, to get her at this point where she is now. And um, and I'm super grateful because that's 60% of my mom I didn't have before. So yeah. um, it's definitely been a journey. And, um, and in that time when my mom was particularly disabled by this illness, um, it was a really hard time for our family. Um, but that's how I became um, aware of this illness. And then Flash forward another few years, um, I, through my network, became aware of the organization SolveME was interested in starting a federal affairs program. And I said, oh, oh, I did that for autism and I used to work on the Hill and this is something that I would love to take my skills. And um, and so that's what brought me to SolveME and I've been here ever since. And, um, and I've managed to, uh, as you say, uh, take my mother's experience, tell it to members of Congress and their staff, and um, and shift the needle on this illness at a at, um, in a major way. Uh, and now I think we're shifting again because um, the comorbidity with long COVID yeah. and the um, the data that shows many people with long COVID are being diagnosed with ME/CFS really indicates that um, that we have a lot more work to do. Yeah. 
Well, first of all, I'm applauding you for being able to tell such what I know is a long convoluted story in such a clear way, because that's something I personally struggle with, as listeners can attest. But, um, you know, and and the your mother's story just really it it illustrates the importance of or the amount of tenacity it takes on the part of loved ones to not stop looking for somebody who will ans- give you answers and take you seriously, you know? Um, I, I wish I, sh- I could say that her experience was unique, but um, mm-hmm. but statistically, it's about four to six years is the average delay for an ME-CFS patient to get diagnosed. That's oh, kind wow. of the average experience. So she was actually on the short end of average with only four years yeah. before she got her diagnosis. Well, and as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but back especially back then, I mean, a lot has changed even in the last 10, 15 years. It was thought, I mean, I remember hearing uh, stories from people on social media that their doctors said that, oh, CFS is chronic fatigue syndrome. That's not real. That's just something that they're getting, a label they're slapping on people that they don't really, it's just women that are just not trying hard enough, like all this horrible stuff, like a stigma against it. Right. And you're nodding for those. Listening. Yes, we, we definitely had that experience. Um, there was one doctor in particular early in our journey that was looking over my mother's blood test results and said, um, there, I can find no reason why you should be this sick. And my mother, you know, being the firebrand that she is, said, don't you tell me how sick I am. Like I, this is, this is my body and I can tell you something's not right. And so it, it really was, we had a lot of pushback from various medical providers um, we had a lot of folks steer us towards mental health um, in, in various uh, respectful and disrespectful ways. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, you know, that, and I have to say, like, even though at that point, my mother had been essentially bed bound for four years. So mental health was absolutely part of the concern. Yeah. There's no way you can go through that kind of complete transformation of your day-to-day experience and not have mental health ramifications, but it was so belittling to have them tell us and tell my mother in particular that her uh, physical symptoms uh, and her and her clearly uh, dysregulated um, immune system were uh, were results of um, uh, of essentially bad mental health. And that's that's yeah. absolutely not the case. And so we had to really and, and it took, um, uh, and, and it actually, uh, it took a really great mental health professional to step in, um, to be a point of contact on the care team to say, mm-hmm. yes, I have, I like, a, we had a really great uh, mental health professional who actually was part of the care team and went to these doctors and said, I am, you know, a certified, you know, PhD MD, and I have evaluated this woman. And yes, that is not the problem. <laughs> it is yeah. ruled that out. And, and that was powerful. Um, so when folks, uh, I guess one takeaway I would share with your audience is um, don't be afraid to have the right mental health partner as part of your team. And I emphasize the right mental health partner, not a one-way dynamic, a two-way dynamic that they truly listen and understand the, the physical aspects of this illness. Um, and that is a very important piece of the medical puzzle. Oh my gosh. I am just, I really, really, I mean, I, fortunately for me only had about a year and a half period where I didn't know what was wrong with my body, but I had a, a, it was similar in the sense that I started becoming highly 
um, anxious objectively about my health, but I had no prior history of health-related anxiety. I mean, I'm a 20-year-old athlete, captain of the college soccer team as a junior, like all conference selection. Like I was not anxious about my health. If anything, I probably took my body for granted, like most young peep kids, you know, you know, teenagers and stuff. And so to be told that, and the people who've listened to the story a million times, but yeah, to be told that the chicken or the egg, you know, they're saying, well, you must be anxious. And that's why your body feels like this. I was like, no, I'm anxious because my body feels like this. Mm -hmm. Like my body feels like it's breaking down. Y'all are telling me I'm not sick. I know I'm sick. I just don't know what I have. And yes, of course, my blood work was also normal <laughs> until they decided to run additional blood work. Yes. So you're yes. like, the phrase your blood work is normal means nothing unless they've run all potential blood work. And it still kind of means nothing in terms of ruling out all potential um, organic or, you know, causes to this because there's lots of things that are not measurable whatsoever by blood work. I mean, pain being one of them. So um, anyway, this is the, well, we could go on that for a super long time. So I'm sorry yeah. your mom went through that. I'm so glad you mentioned that. That's actually um, part of the work I do in my professional capacity is um, what you're talking about is um, very important. It's a really, really critical aspect of where research and patient experiences sort of meet in a very real way. And, what I, and this is called patient reported outcomes. So mm -hmm. what you're describing is um, a data classification of when a patient says they feel a certain way or the patient says they have a certain experience. And we actually, in the scientific realm, categorize those data points separately as what you would say, you know, a blood metric or a, a, an exercise trial or, you know, some kind of physical, tangible way to measure performance of your body. And so um, for a long time, and this is actually a very real hard experience in um, the MECFS community, patient reported outcomes were not considered viable data. So if you had, a, and this is a real, real story, the story of the drug Amplogen, you had a drug that um, that a big chunk of people who were tested with it responded to. And in those response rates, about 40% of people said, this drug makes me feel better, miraculously better, really much better. And the FDA said, okay, well, show us in other, in, in what they, you know, other data, real data, and I use the bunny quotes for people who are not um, able to see us, that I put finger quotes around real data, that um, it, they said, this is not, you know, show us in the numbers on a blood test or on, a, on some sort of performance metric, how these patients got better. And they couldn't, they couldn't show in, in that kind of data, how the patients got better, but the patients were reporting they felt better. And do you know what happened to that drug? It was not approved, Do not because of safety, but because they couldn't demonstrate efficacy, quote unquote, um, they couldn't uh, demonstrate the the uh, the drug actually having impact, despite 40% of patients saying this drug really helps me. And so that is a very real way. And so when it, it, it manifests at the at the policy level, with the way we deal with patient data, it manifests at the clinical level with how a doctor responds to patient mm -hmm. data in the, in the form of, I don't feel well, and this is how I don't feel well. And it, and it happens at the research level with how we collect data and yeah. how we determine whether or not treatments are potentially working. So what you bring up is a really important point that um, we work on every day here at Solve ME. It's, it's incredible. And it, it, it completely relates to rheumatoid arthritis, you know, there is some overlap, which we're going to discuss a little bit later, both conditions, MECFS and rheumatoid arthritis involve fatigue. There's a little bit of an uncertainty about the cause of the fatigue in both conditions, but 
the fatigue, what you're saying about PROs, patient recorded outcomes is so critical in the fatigue element of rheumatoid arthritis because until patients started becoming partners in research, guess what? The FDA approved medicines for rheumatoid arthritis did not even have fatigue as an outcome measure. They were wow. only looking at, they were looking at patient reported pain and the blood work. They were not looking at patient reported fatigue. And the entire theory in the field was that both pain and fatigue were the root cause of them was that inflammation. But it turns out that the kind of inflammation we have those markers for, for rheumatoid arthritis tracks partly with pain and fatigue, but doesn't track perfectly. There's people whose blood work looks perfect on their medication, uh, when they're on their medication and they still have persistent pain and or fatigue. So, um, it's so important again. I mean, it's a, it's a blessing and a curse that patients, you know, need to be involved in advocacy and involved in research, um, in order to get this, to get the kind of care that's going to be most helpful for us, you know, long-term, um, but back just to backtrack one second before we move on to the more of the details about, um, like we're going to talk about post-exertional malaise and the kind of fatigue that people might have who have ME-CFS. Can we, can you take, <laughs> let me know like the, um, cliff notes version of what is the definition of ME-CFS and who treats it? Ooh, good question. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so ME-CFS or myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome is, uh, is a hybridized term. You can hear you, it has the slash in it and it, and it's sort of, and it's, um, depending on which definition you use, it can use, have a couple different meanings. Um, our organization believes that any definition of ME-CFS that's used must include the presence of post-exertional malaise or PEM as a symptom. And we'll talk about that later, but that is a critical high hallmark characteristic that it must be present um, in order for a diagnosis of ME-CFS to occur. So under the Institute of Medicine 2015 curriculum or, or a decision, um, or sorry, uh, the 2015 Institute of Medicine um, sir, uh, criteria yeah, for the, ME-CFS diagnosis. Um, the there are a list of symptoms which include mm -hmm. neurological symptoms, it includes uh, musculoskeletal symptoms, it includes uh, uh, various other symptom trees, um, including neurological symptoms as well. Um, and so it's kind of a selection list that one of these other symptoms should be present and post-exertional malaise. And I think the key di definition criteria is um, that these symptoms persist, cause a significant reduction in quality of life, and persist for six months or longer and are most often preceded by an infection or systemic trauma. Um, so this can be surgery, this can be blood transfusions, this can be a viral or infection pathogen, um, a chemical exposure, uh, mold exposure. One of these things usually precipitates, but not always. And that's actually one of the really interesting things that um, we learned as, again, thanks to um, long COVID and the viral pandemic, is that um, there are asymptomatic viruses, um, something yes. that we didn't fully, I think, integrate and appreciate prior to that. So it's interesting that the ratio of folks who have um, no obvious sign of, uh, of a trigger before their ME-CFS comes on um, is similar to the rate of people who have um, asymptomatic virus presentations. Mm. So we don't know for sure, but you know, correlation does not equal causation. So yeah. I wanna be very yeah. clear about this data. 
but it, it, it potentially could lend evidence to the fact that this is um, a disease that's triggered by a systemic viral or infection um, that then causes something to go out of whack. And there's a lot of evidence and a lot of strong hypotheses that very much confirm um, that the, that data and that and that um, that line of thinking. If you have ever felt completely lost or utterly alone while trying to navigate real life with rheumatic disease, listen up, I am here for you. I created an educational program to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported and connected in a matter of weeks. And it's called Room to Thrive. After earning a master's in occupational therapy and completing hundreds of hours of additional training, I created a step-by-step -step guide to help you truly thrive with rheumatic disease. This is the only program I know of that's designed to improve quality of life for people living with inflammatory autoimmune forms of arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, Sjogren's disease, and more. During the self-paced lessons, you'll learn how to manage pain and fatigue, cope with stress, navigate relationships, and continue doing the things that matter to you and bring you joy. The goal is really to help you improve your quality of life and learn how to thrive with your rheumatic disease right now, rather than waiting for a distant day when it might be cured or healed. I really created the down-to-earth, practical, heartfelt resource I wish I had had when I was first diagnosed at age 20. If you want even more in-depth support, you can join the 12-week Room to Thrive virtual support group where you'll be surrounded by people who actually get what you're going through. People who will provide the encouragement, validation, and support that you deserve. Each group is expertly moderated so you don't have to worry about the kind of misinformation that spreads like wildfire in the free-for-all social media groups. If you're on the fence, don't just take my word for it. Here's what Katie had to say in March, 2023. I was lost and overwhelmed with my RA diagnosis. It felt overwhelming to know what to read, what to do, how to spend my energy trying to research on the internet. Room to Thrive did that for me. It's been like getting a crash course in my diagnosis along with a community who gets it. To see all the details, including the dates for the next support groups, go to the link in the show notes or bit.ly slash thrive room with a capital T and capital R. You can also just email me anytime at info at myarthritislife.net. And don't delay if you're interested because each group is capped at 16 people or less in order to make a small, intimate group atmosphere. Thanks so much for your time. And I can't wait to get started with the next groups. And I can't wait for those of you who are interested in the self-paced option to go ahead and join that at any time. Bye-bye for now. Yeah. And I'm going to put in the um, detailed show notes on the website. There's a great, you know, fact sheet that's a, uh, from the world ME Alliance from solve <laughs> ME and, you know, um, that, that is really helpful for understanding ME CFS. And it is an interesting similarity to rheumatoid arthritis. Rheumatoid arthritis is the cause is there are multiple causes that are you know potentially genetic inherited predisposition right no environmental triggers or there's the genetic predisposition plus an environmental trigger like a virus or a quote unquote like lifestyle choice like smoking um can be there there's so there's kind of these different data points but one of them that is can be similar with MECFS and RA is that um having a virus and interestingly I 
I always forget to tell people this, that I had this virus called the Coxsackie virus mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that in high school. And I didn't develop RA until four years later, but it's who knows, maybe that was laying dormant and somehow my immune system suddenly was like, we are going to <laughs> go on attack mode and throughout your whole body. But um, okay, so yeah, so it's the, the hallmark symptom is that PEM post-exertional malaise. Let's figure out what is that? It is a, a, uh, a gnarly symptom. (laughs) Um, my mom refers to it as your own personal health, because what post-exertional malaise does is if you exert yourself past the point of your body's kind of threshold, um, it triggers a complete relapse and shutdown. So all of your symptoms flare your uh your your body kind of goes into that crash that we that I think is a very common term that RA's parents experience RA patients experience also um that uh you your the physical fatigue the musculoskeletal fatigue the brain fog all the symptoms get worse and exacerbated and it's it's all built into this kind of time period of between 24 and 48 hours after some kind of exertion so when folks describe that pushed crash experience, um, that is often what we would call post-exertional malaise. And the word malaise is really unfortunate. There's another way to describe that's um, post-exertional neurological exacerbation, P-E-N-E. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a couple ways to describe the symptom, but really it's it's that experience of um, of having a good day going out and enjoying that good day, doing whatever it is that you're passionate about doing. And as my mom would say, and then you're punished for it. Yeah. Um, it's almost eight hours later. Yes. Yeah. From like a behavioral perspective, it's so tragic. It's reminds me of, I have a cousin who has narcolepsy and one of his triggers is laughter. So oh. when he laughs, he sometimes suddenly narcolepsy is where you suddenly fall asleep. Um, and so he has this negative reinforcement where with joy, then this mm-hmm. terrible thing happens where if he's in the middle of this, you know, a concert or something and he laughs, he could fall asleep. Same way with you. Know, you're like, wow, I, I'm feeling great. I'm at my friend's wedding, you know, and then you 24 to 48 hours within 24 to 48 hours, you suddenly feel so much worse. Your, your brain is at some point going to associate exertion with um, feeling bad. And, exactly, and yeah. it's, yeah. And it's not, it's, th- this is where it can get a little tricky. If and I know the primary audience of people listening to this have in some sort of inflammatory or autoimmune kind of arthritis, like rheumatoid, psoriatic, ankylosing spondylitis, or lupus. Some of you will also have a separate diagnosis of ME CFS. And that, that just like Emily said, the hallmark symptom of that is that post-exertional malaise. The average patient from the research I have been able to um, look at, you know, from the occupational therapist lens and also from my own patient lens and experience is that the typical patient with RA feels better when they exercise fatigue wise, sleep wise, mood wise. However, I would say this is where the devil's always in the details that there is, you do have to exercise with it, or so exercise isn't the same as exertion, but it involves exertion. Um, but, um, you can exert yourself in many ways that you wouldn't necessarily think of as exercise, right? Like just going places, doing stuff, going to the grocery store. Mm -hmm. But, um, the, uh, average person with RA is going to have a threshold after which they will feel 
like I'll just say myself, I will feel worse when I push myself far outside of my normal, uh, just right challenge. We, in o OT, we call it the just right challenge. You know, so if I usually I ride my exercise bike 20 to 30 minutes, and then I've done weightlifting anywhere between 20 and minutes to an hour with a little rest in between. If I suddenly try to ride my bike for three hours, four hours, I'm going to feel really bad, you know, but I'm not feeling bad if I, on a daily basis, when I exert myself a little bit beyond my normal threshold, that sounds like with ME CFS, you're really feeling that consistently worse after yes. this. Yeah. yeah. And what you're describing is actually um, what we call pacing. Um, yeah. and, uh, and pacing is, um, a critical healthcare and like lifestyle salvation of so mm -hmm. many people with MECFS. Um, pacing is essentially, um, exactly as you described, learning where your boundaries are and they are highly individual, highly specific for each person. So your 20 minutes of exercise bike might be somebody else's getting up and go to the bathroom, might be somebody else's three hours of exercise bike, right? So it's so specific for what you and yourself are experiencing. For my mother, when we were very first beginning to kind of uh, on her medical journey, the, that pacing involved um, uh, you know, a walk to the kitchen and back. And that was kind of as far as we started. And then it was like maybe to the living room and back. And then maybe, okay, we can get to the car and back just to like practice maybe a potential drive. And, um, and then, you know, the energy that a drive takes and just even sitting upright and how difficult that is. So um, this, it all plays together. So pacing, um, and there's some really great, I'll, I'll add them into the chat, some really great pacing uh, guides from our uh, friends at Emmy Action who have an excellent uh, one pager that describes what and how to pace, but it's about uh, the, the ultimate goal of pacing and the ultimate end result that you're looking for when you pace is avoiding post-exertional malaise, so preventing the crash cycle while gradually elongating that, that energy envelope, or gradually, gradually increasing the amount that you can be okay for. Um, but again, without triggering post-exertional malaise, because if you trigger that crash episode, that post-exertional malaise, you potentially set yourself back all the way to the beginning. Yeah. And you can actually make yourself worse long-term if you trigger PEM too frequently and too often. So sometimes, yeah. and I think this is the difficult reality of living with these illnesses, you have to trigger post-exertional malaise. Like, for example, you mentioned like a friend's wedding. Yeah. Um, that was actually one of, one of the most challenging points was when my brother got married. And we were trying to get my mother to the ceremony. And um, it was incredibly difficult because she was having a bad day that day. And, you know, we had, we had traveled, uh, we actually specifically traveled the day before to give her extra time to rest so that we would be potentially ready for the wedding. But we did not plan it out well enough and we did not have enough rest time. And so we were a bit late to the ceremony. And, you know, that that made some people angry and hurt some feelings and you know that but that was the reality is that you know without uh the you plan you build into your planning triggering post-exertional malaise because you want to be present at an event like that so that's one part of pacing is you know is managing if you're going to try and you know go beyond your limits you know you're going to do something like for a wedding or for something special that you want to to be present for you know, giving a week afterwards to recover, making sure you travel ahead of time to recover from the travel. All of that is sort of built into that lifestyle management of acknowledging 
the physical limitations of of someone of your own body and in this case it was my mother's body that was really struggling to keep up the good news is uh and you know the the still the, the the beautiful part of that story is we did get there in time for pictures and there were and we did have some beautiful moments and yeah we made it work by good communication and and you know folks having enough compassion to understand that my mom was managing her chronic illness but not everybody gets that and it, and we still to this day have some little touch points where it's like well at least you're not late and it's like okay that was really not necessary um but that's but that's sort of the reality that folks deal with and that's just one example of a wedding and then multiply that times everything you do taking a shower making yourself a meal you know spending time with your loved ones it's a constant negotiation and it is emotionally exhausting for the people who have to constantly make that decision and it's emotionally exhausting for the people who um, are trying to assist with making those decisions and try to be support is that um, you never know where you're going to be because these illnesses are so transient. And um, and it just, I, I'd say a, a take home for your readers and I, or your listeners, um, you never you never know anybody else's journey, right? You never know where someone wow. else is at and if they're having a good day or a bad day. And I think we in the chronic illness community have collectively learned to give ourselves that grace and then by extension, give others that grace but there are many, many folks in the rest of the community that are a bit ableist and don't see those invisible disabilities. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think we can all be better about um, communicating. And even when you tell your story about an RA, you're helping somebody with ME-CFS because you're, you're making that impact of, are we all giving each other grace for, our, for those who have invisible illnesses or invisible disabilities? A hundred percent. And I think, you know, I was, the phrase came up to, to mind as you were talking, like, listen to your body is such a, um, it's such an incomplete thing. Like we're told so often, listen to your body, right? But with things like post-exertional malaise, um, where your body in the moment is, or even let's say dietary triggers for some people would also be dietary triggers are often delayed. Um, for me, being in the sun or being hot are huge fatigue triggers. Like I, and I feel them pretty quickly, but it's, you know, it's way worse, like five to eight hours afterwards. So if you're just listening to your body in the moment, your body, if you might have endorphins, you might just not be physiologically experiencing the repercussions of your actions yet. We can't, we don't even have the luxury to just listen to our body. We have to always account for what is my body feeling right now, but what do I also know from my past patterns, you know, it's so complex. Absolutely. It's why I'm a huge proponent of medical journaling. That was the single thing that helped our family so much was, um, especially when it came to food sensitivity, because as you say, it's a few hours later or even a day later. Mm -hmm. And so we would write down everything that mom ate, everything that she took, all of her medications, and then we'd start finding those patterns. And um, and so medical journaling, um, even if you don't share it with your doctor, but I highly encourage folks to medical journal with the intention of sharing it with your doctor. Um, because it really is a, a one of the most helpful tools that my family found for identifying those patterns and trends. And that was critical in our world of pacing for my mother's yeah. illness. And I think something I learned about myself is that I am I tend to be a problem solver. And so I'm seeking like what's the what is the ultimate plan? What is my ultimate RA plan? And I think when I first got diagnosed, and this might this would relate to ME CFS too, it's like 
with any chronic illness, you're thinking, okay, well, just tell me what the plan is, or I'll figure it out. I'll do my tracking. And I think at some point for me, it was so helpful to say on the one hand, I'm going to put a lot of time and energy into discovering my body's patterns, learning about this condition, connecting to others, figuring, quote unquote, figuring it out. And I'm Mm -hmm. also going to, thankfully for therapy that I finally, for a long time, I didn't go to therapy because of that experience of being told I was not sick, just anxious. And I was like, I'm not going to go to therapy because that means you guys were right. That it was, you know, that my anxiety was causing all this. But anyway, so I finally went to therapy and realized that it's so beneficial to also build up coping skills for when you're like, you know what? I trapped this and nine, nine times out of a hundred, this, and when I did A, it resulted in B. But today I did A and I'm it resulted in X. Like I feel worse now. And I did mm-hmm. the thing that, Five five days in a row, I did I did my twenty minute exercise bike. Five days in a row, felt great, felt great, felt great. Same human, apparently. I'm still me, and I some days I'll do that twenty minutes, and mysteriously, I will not feel good anymore. And we have and at, for a long time, I kept trying to fig, quote unquote figure it out. And finally, I was like, okay, it's helpful to do that, but it's also helpful to say. Sometimes it's just random or sometimes I won't know. And that's okay. And being like you mentioned that grace and compassion for yourself too can be so, so helpful. Um, and grace and compassion from the people around you. Um, and that's, we kind of have to educate them, you know, and say, look, a lot of people tell me, well, how do I get them to understand? Like, how do I get the people in my life to understand what I'm going through? And, you know, on the one hand, you can't make someone understand something that they're determined not to understand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Anybody who've had children know that. No, I'm just kidding. But um, uh, like trying to tell a toddler, you know, no, you can't have that. You know, why not go to the toy store with a toddler? You're like, they don't want to understand that. No, but um, but that also, you know, it's, it's okay to say that some people won't, well, they don't get it till they get it. Like some people will come back into your life later after they've experienced something like long COVID or like a friend or loved one or themselves having MECFS. And then they'll be like, okay, I get it now, you know? So, so, um, but yeah, thank you. You've put in here uh, the pacing and management guide, which I hundred percent like in my occupational therapy program, not surprisingly, we didn't learn anything that I remember about MECFS. We did learn about conditions that cause fatigue, like that, that are more, um, well-known like, mm-hmm. uh, multiple sclerosis. Um, and they did, they, I was taught in my master's of OT program about, you know, activity pacing and energy conservation. Um, and so these are very well-known techniques in terms of like, um, the research, but not all patients are taught them, you know, you're not all given help from a physical therapist, occupational therapist, and you know, similarly, not I, unfortunately, there's a un, with I know with MECFS, there's a little bit of a history of the well intentioned, you know, physical therapists and OTs not knowing about post exertional malaise and then being like, we just need to just keep pushing yourself and keep exercising. And you're like, I'm feeling worse. <laughs> like, well, yeah. so, you know. and a lot of that is driven by our payment structure. So, this is another oh, moment where, yes. you know, policy and, and clinical care kind of crash into each other is that our insurance payers and our policies are designed like you're supposed to always see improvement, right? So if you're not showing improvement, we're not going to pay you, even though in many cases, and any physical therapist will tell you, sometimes maintenance is the goal. Sometimes prevention is the goal. So, yeah. you know, that that endless push to like, okay, we want to see your outcomes recover. Sometimes, you know, that not seeing change, the like balance, maintaining a, an even keel 
is the is a positive result of pacing if you and if you're not triggering post-exertional malaise and things are evening out and you're not having crashes that's good you may not be exerting yourself more but you're managing and so i think that's something to keep in mind is that um a lot of these systems are sort of driving towards predestined out predetermined outcomes that are not necessarily reflective of the reality of these less understood illnesses. RA, for example, ME-CFS is another big example, mm -hmm. long COVID, which we're still learning about, another big example, kind of a constellation of other illnesses. So mm -hmm. all of these things are just kind of critical in saying, again, listen to your body. And, um, and sometimes you have to be your own advocate to know and your body's advocate to know when you're, when you're hit your limits. And you got to listen to that. Um, and uh, especially you kind of mentioned exercise earlier. I just wanted to just kind of circle back to that point. Yeah. Um, no, I'm so glad you mentioned that because exercise for uh, for many illnesses, for POTS as well, is um, something that can improve long-term outcomes. But for ME-CFS and especially for people with post-exertional malaise, the opposite is true. So it is it, it does create this sort of cognitive dissonance where it's like, okay, you have POTS you should exercise. Okay, you have RA, you should exercise. Oh, but you also have ME-CFS. Maybe that's going to be harmful. So I, I, I would advise everyone who's listening, if you think that ME-CFS might be you, if you think you're having that push-crash cycle and that post-exertional malaise symptom, talk to your doctor and be very cautious about pursuing exercise as a potential treatment um, because it can, for people with ME-CFS, cause long-term harm and actually set you back and you'll lose yeah functionality over the long term. Yes. And I think um it if you have rheumatoid arthritis, you're going to be seen by a rheumatologist just out of curiosity for someone listening who maybe is undiagnosed or only has a primary care. Is there, I honestly don't know this, so I'm asking you, um, is there a medical professional that's like the bread and butter one that would like diagnose MECFS or is it very um what's the word, you know, is it dependent on the professional's own expertise and experience? It is very dependent on the professional's okay. expertise. Um, there's no specific speciality that owns ME-CFS per se. Okay. Um, so it's, and it's also very multi-systemic. So it falls in a lot of areas. We know the immune systems involved. So your endocrinologists and your immunologists kind of are, 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 that's where we found help with a particular, uh, with a particular doctor. Um, definitely um, neurologists, there's neurological symptoms and neurologists often get involved, infectious disease specialists because there's an infectious disease component. Um, all sorts of different doctors can be specialists in, in this area. And it's sort of, uh, I emphasize this a lot with the folks that I talk to and work with, that it's about the partnership you create with that doctor. And so yeah. I think any doctor can be the right fit. It doesn't, and there's no particular speciality that I would say go to this one. Mm. I would say it's about the, the specialist you find there and about their willingness and ability to A, listen to their patients, to take those patient reported outcomes and take them into meaningful uh into into a meaningful discourse, um, partner with their patients. Um, it's a collaborative two-way relationship. It's not one way. And I think that power structure needs to be balanced mm -hmm. and that's a critical part. And, um, and three, someone who might be willing to learn. 
um, someone who's got an open mind. Um, I think one, one of the statistics, this may be outdated now, but back in 2015, only 30% of medical textbooks even mentioned ME-CFS. So that means wow. the rest yeah. of the doctors who were not getting those textbooks had no idea what they were dealing with. So it might be truly an information gap. And if they're willing to admit they don't know what's going on and yeah. learn something, that's a critical characteristics of a good doctor in, in this space. Um, of a good partner in this space. Um, someone who may admit, I don't have all the answers and I'm willing to learn from someone who might have them. Um, and I'll also say that there's a couple MECFS specialists um, who are willing to uh, do teleconsults um, mm -hmm. with other doctors. And so um, there's a list on the Solve ME website. Uh, so that's, a, again, not every doctor offers that, not every specialist offers that, but some of them do. And that can be a really good me method to getting the information to your doctor. There's also, as you mentioned, the World ME Guide, uh, World ME Alliance Guide. There's a lot of great um, uh, medical publications, but the I'll just do a shameless plug for our friends at the Bateman Horn Center who have some of the best medical education in this area. Um, they have continuing medical education uh, programs, including some echo style programs that are just absolutely amazing. So if you are looking for resources for your doctor specifically and your doctor is willing to learn, um, the Bateman Horn Center is a great resource there for, um, for medical information about this illness. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And I thought Part about partnering with your provider is 100% identical in rheumatology as well. If you have rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic, it really, the and this is best practices recommended by every professional association, European Union League Against Rheumatism, American College of Rheumatology. It's a partnership between the patient and provider, but a lot of providers or doctors are um, in kind of an old, some of them are just in an outdated, that's not how they were trained. So, mm -hmm. you know, keeping, uh, unfortunately, there is also a rheumatologist shortage. So sometimes you don't have a huge amount of choice, but within the choices you have, you know, finding somebody who will partner with you, take the time to explain things to you and um, look at your unique patterns, whether or not they're typical or not, you know, and I was going to say the, just, just so I'm really clear to people listening, if you only have rheumatoid arthritis, exercise is actually the most recommended integrative health treatment. According to these, there's 2022 guidelines from the American College of Rheumatology guidelines for exercise, rehabilitation, diet, and additional integrative interventions. Exercise, consistent engagement exercise is the only one that was highly recommended is recommended above any specific diet, above any specific um, alternative uh, complementary thing, like, you know, acupuncture, massage, even thermal modalities, which, you know, people put up like heat pads, cooling pads. So even more than comprehensive occupational therapy. So I'm trying to be objective here, even more than my own profession. Um, so if that is your only diagnosis, exercise, even if it's high intensity, is not likely to cause um, the kinds of post-exertional malaise that you're seeing with MECFS. It's if you, but if you're starting an exercise plan and you're starting really, really, and you start and you're feeling fatigued, something that I would do is scale it back first. Maybe, maybe you jumped in too fast. You know, maybe you just like, like I said, like myself, if I push it way beyond my boundary, I will get really fatigued. Um, and so, and so, you know, starts really slow. And if you don't experience that stair-step improvement pretty rapidly with increasing your activity levels, it's like 15 minutes, 20, 25, you're really consistently feeling 
fatigued, then that would might be a sign that you could go, you know, ask, uh, ask, I would almost wonder if you could ask your own rheumatologist, do you have experience diagnosing ME-CFS or evaluating for it? And if not, who do you recommend? Because it is kind of a small world in some it of is. these. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, rheumatologists, are, I think, are known a little bit of as being pretty cerebral and pretty much, you know, used to gray areas or not as much like, I don't know, I don't want to make like too many, um, you know, there's, there's definitely stereotypes of different doctors that are, you know, based on some realities. <laughs> They're like, if I cannot see it in while scope, putting a scope in your esophagus, it is not real. Um, you know, so rheumatologists are pretty good at these gray areas, but, um, but they may not have a lot of experience in ME CFS. Um, so I know that's going to be something that if people listening, some of them are going to want to pursue um, because yeah, to a hammer, everything is a nail. You know, if you're having mm -hmm. fatigue and you have rheumatoid arthritis, it's easy for providers to just say, oh, well, it's just from your arthritis, but just the rheumatoid arthritis wouldn't cause this really consistent post-exertional malaise, the severe fatigue uh, typically that you would see in ME-CFS. So that's what we're trying to kind of disentangle a little bit today. Absolutely. But, and I think that's important to note. Um, we talked about during our presentation um, at the autoimmune conference, the types of fatigue. Oh, and yes. there are definitely fatigue is an umbrella term. There's a lot of different flavors, I think. And anybody who's experienced a chronic illness, especially a complex chronic illness like rheumatoid arthritis or ME-CFS, you know those flavors of fatigue in, in, intimately right. well. Um, but, uh, but for those who may not be familiar, post-exertional malaise is one type of fatigue. You may also get musculoskeletal fatigue where your physical limbs feel heavy or leaden and you can't move them. You may get cognitive fatigue with brain fog or fibro fog as some folks call it, where you just kind of feel like your, your brain is literally floating in a cloud outside your head and you can't get it to like work with you today. Uh, we've had those experiences. Uh, and then there's also, um, you know, the, the pervasive fatigue of like, I feel like I ran a marathon and my body is like, can't keep up. So it really helps. And this is something I'll, I'll, this is another kind of tips and tricks for the medical field um, to when you're describing your fatigue, be very specific about what you're experiencing and try to use a, a, a tangible example. And let me be specific on what I mean by that. So instead of saying, I feel tired all the time, right? That's, that's, uh, oh, wow. Well, okay. What type of fatigue, how often, and how severe? Those are the three categories I want you to think about when you think about your symptoms. Um, so if you're experiencing, oh, I'm tired all the time. Oh, actually, now that I think about it, it's my, my body is tired. It's my, it's my limbs. Like I feel like my, I, I'm having that muscular skeletal fatigue. I can't move my arm very well. That, um, oh, and how often does it happen? Oh, that happens three to five times a week, I'm experiencing that fatigue or every day, three to five times a day or three to five times an hour. Be specific about what, how frequently it's happening and how severe it is. Give an example. So my arm fatigue is so bad, I can't lift a cup of water or it's yeah. so bad, I can't lift a, lo a load of laundry or it's so bad that I can't lift it off the bed. Those, those are three very different symptoms and the doctor needs to hear exactly where you're coming from about your specific symptoms. So especially when it comes to fatigue, because fatigue is such a nuanced symptom, help your doctor out by giving them how frequently it happens, how severe it is with an actual example of like, this is what I'm experiencing. 
um, and uh, and what kind of fatigue it is or what kind of pain it is or, you know, the, to give them the flavor of that particular yeah. symptom. And that will go a long way to helping your doctor understand what your day-to-day experience is. That is a hundred percent. Cause yeah, that is so true. Actually, I give people that, or I, I recommend doing that for pain as well, because pain for, for rheumatoid arthritis, it's not just one thing, right? I might be on the scale of, you know, stiffness. I might be at a four for stiffness, a zero for sharp stabbing pain, you know, a maybe two for hot pain. Like I might have my joints are tender, swollen, hot, but not stabbing. And they're similar. They're also stiff, but, you know, but having just one number that doesn't have any context to it is not helpful. And I mean, this is like music to my ears as an occupational therapist is linking it to your functional activity. And that not only it it, it paints a picture to your doctor, and it also is something they can document because you're saying it's, are they having a functional limitation? Like the whole point of occupational therapy is helping people with illness, injury, disability, be able to function in their daily activities. If the person can't function, we should be able to see them under our scope of practice. Whether or not insurance decides to reimburse for that is their own drama um, around them trying to make money and not wanting to pay for anything. Um, so anyway, sorry if you're an insurance company, um, but <laughs> tell me if I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> I, in my experience, you are not wrong. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's like they... I have seen a lot of, just in the three years of running this, the Room to Thrive support group that I'm doing for people with rheumatic disease, room being short for rheumatic, or like, like rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthritis. So many people, they've said, I've told my doctor, I said, I tell them what, tell them what, or consider, I'm not giving you medical advice, but consider telling them what can you not do specifically? My hands are so stiff. I can't turn the pages in my child's book or my grandchild's book to read them a board book, not even like a difficult to turn page, right? Or it's so stiff, I can't hold the pot to, um, or I'm, I have so much fatigue, like you mentioned earlier, I can't get from the bed to the bathroom. I have to put a bedside commode next to my bed because I t- can't take those 15 steps, you know? And um, and again, tragically, if you are bed bound, you will typically qualify for home health occupational therapy for um, at least a short while. But, you know, we would literally come to people's houses. I mean, I just saw this happen actually with my mom. This is more of an acute rehabilitation. She had her hip replaced, but it was, they met, they're talking literal number of steps. How many steps are to, from the upstairs to downstairs? How many steps does she have to walk to the bathroom? You know, it, this, is there a turn here or there? Does she turn left or right? These are those tedious things that we actually measure as a health profession. So you don't have to go through all of it on your own, although you typically will end up having to go through some of it on your own, sadly. <laughs> it's good news, and, bad news. And that's the, that's the part where I think advocacy comes in is, um, is to ensure that those experience of people who do have to go through it on their own it, have the support and, um, and safety net that they need and deserve to be able to survive and be part of our society. And I think that's, um, that's again, one of those examples of where um, the reality of your patient experience hits sort of the meta policy world, yeah. uh, because those are the the decisions that we collectively make as a society. Where do we put our resources? Who are we helping? And, you know, the, and if you're not telling your story, if we're not seeing that experience, then no one's going to help it because it's not in the public discourse. So I think, again, just advocacy, public awareness, sharing your, your truth is so critical um, in, in 
changing the overall way that we collectively handle these illnesses. And those are at the big level with policy, at the little level with doctors, and at the individual level with your day-to-day. Oh my gosh. So, so beautifully said. And I'll put some links um, to, for people who have arthritis specifically to some um, organizations that provide kind of annual or, or frequently throughout the year advocacy opportunities. And just in case you're like me at first, I was kind of Unlike you, I was not comfortable with federal or legislative policy at first or, or um, state level policy. I was scared because I was like, I don't understand how the government really works. I don't know, like what's the legislative versus a judicial. Like I remember learning this in high school, but am I going to look stupid if I go up there? And I'm usually not shy. I'm I usually I'm not shy to tell my story anywhere. But the first time I did share with a legislative representative or, you know, a state senator, or um, state representative to the federal, you know, government, I was kind of like, I was nervous. But what what I didn't know before doing it is that these organizations, whether it's Solve ME, Autoimmune Association, Arthritis Foundation, like I've gone to Washington, D.C. with the American College of Rheumatology, my state capital with the Arthritis Foundation, they prep you, they give you the bullet points. And they, they do the heavy work for you of understanding, okay, this senator is related to arthritis in this way. You know, like my, turns out my representative to, uh, or my, my state representative is a, her mom has rheumatoid arthritis. So it's like immediately, I know that I'm talking to somebody who understands this a little bit more than the average person. Right. Um, and then they give you your talking points. And like you said, what you need to provide is your own story to humanize these issues. Cause these legislators are, you know, advocacy people, they get the lobbyists, everyone's just like talking to them with these statistics all day. And yeah. what, what, what um, all you need to do is come in and be like, this happened to me. It hurt me because of this, or it helped me because of this. And it's really gratifying because when you've been so beat down, you know, year after year by feeling like, wow, I'm like at the mercy my healthcare decisions are being made by people, the insurance company employees who don't even have any healthcare training. Like it's a really demoralizing experience. Then you can feel, at least I'm doing something to help, you know, sorry, preaching to the choir. It helps so much. I cannot tell you how much it is. It is the, um, I often use this analogy of, um, of a car when we're talking about okay. of advocacy and you have the person who's driving the car, you have the navigator, you've got everyone in the car who's kind of collectively traveling on this journey of progress or systems change together. But what your stories are, what your advocacy is, what your volunteer hours are, is the gasoline that makes that car go. Without any of that, the car is not going anywhere. And truly, so it, it is your experiences, your lived experience, you are an expert in your own experience that um, that makes the advocacy possible. Because without your storytelling, without that um, that awareness generating, the car is not the car of advocacy does not drive. So you are the gas that powers this important car. And um, and don't be afraid to share your stories, please. Uh, get involved. Um, I'll definitely share some links as well. Um, but couldn't couldn't agree more. Um, you said it so well, Cheryl. That that is um, the the one of the most powerful things you as a patient can do. Well, I mean, thank you so much. It's been really wonderful talking to you. It went by really really fast. Um, if you have an extra minute, I I always like to ask what is what advice would you have for somebody newly diagnosed? I mean, listen to this whole thing because it's chock full of helpful information. But <laughs> Is there anything, any thing that you like to tell newly diagnosed people? Oh, wow. There's a lot of things I would tell, but I'd say if I had to distill it into just one, identify, find, and use your support networks. And you have more than you realize. 
Think about everyone in the community that has your illness, peer-to-peer networks, folks like Cheryl, folks <laughs> like me. I mean, we, we are part of your support network at a big level and at a small level. So I'd say find, utilize your support networks, and they can be as big as an entire organization. They can be as small as your sister, brother, mother, friend, partner, um, but don't be afraid to use them because um, I think the folks that I see overall who manage these illnesses and are happy and successful in life, despite this, this chronic illness, are the ones that are willing and able to ask for help. And, um, and I think there's a lot of, a lot of support out there. Even if you're feeling isolated and alone, there's a lot of people who care about you and are there with you and done this journey and they are gold mines of information. So I'd say, mm-hmm. I, I, I could say a hundred other things too, but I think all roads lead to, uh, finding that support network and engaging in that support network and, um, remembering and utilizing it whenever you we were down. Cause there's a lot of folks out there like me who are fighting for these illnesses every day and have really great resources to share. I I love it. That that applies really to so many conditions. I think it's I think it's beautifully said. Um where can people find you or your organization online? Oh, well, we are solveme, so you can find us at solveme.org. .org. Um we're please solve cfs on uh X or Twitter. Um we are uh Please follow CSA on Twitter. Um, we're also on Instagram. We're on LinkedIn. Okay. Um, we're on Facebook. That's uh, All of those communities are available and open. Um, so there's lots of different ways to find us. I'd be happy to share all that information. That's that's our organization. I'd also mention, I mentioned um, ME Action, another great organization with pacing and management guides. I mentioned Bateman Horn Center, another great organization. Um, for those of you with long COVID, the COVID-19 Long Hauler Advocacy Project is mm-hmm. stellar. Um, even if you had RA and then got COVID and got new symptoms, mm-hmm. that's still cool. Or even exacerbated your old symptoms, that's qualifies as long COVID. So if you're one of those folks, right. the COVID-19 Long Hauler Advocacy Project is doing stellar work. Um, and I could go on and on, but those are the yeah. kind of, the, the, the <laughs> I'll stop great. there because I know we're out of time. No, it's great. And it is part of, you mentioned the support network is I, I'm always, you know, I'm older. I was diagnosed in 2003 and I'm always you know, I'm, I'm, it just blows my mind when someone, you know, will send me a, an, a DM or private message on Instagram being like, I just got diagnosed like an hour ago, like, and I found you and I'm like, whoa, like this is, it, it's amazing that you can find, I mean, it's a blessing and a curse, social media, but um, we both know this, but you know, the fact that you can immediately reach out and you can start building that network the day you mm-hmm. get diagnosed is just it's really exciting to me. So yeah, <laughs> the internet is a powerful tool and has brought so many people together and, and things yeah. like this, that we can, you know, get, get information out there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, everyone check out definitely the show notes to be sure to get, there's going to be tons of links in the show notes today. Um, and just Emily, thank you again for your time and your advocacy. Um, I just can't wait to see what keeps coming out of, you know, solve Emmy. You are doing amazing work. So thank you again. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Cheryl. And it's a pleasure working with you. And um, if there's any way that we can help in your advocacy work or oh. your continued, please, we we, um, we love to partner. Um, don't hesitate to reach out. Awesome. Thank you so much. Bye-bye Take for care. now. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, an educational program I created from scratch to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks. 
You can go through the pre-recorded course on your own, or you can take the course along with a support group. Learn more at the link in my show notes, or you can always go to www.myarthritislife.net. And if you like this podcast, I would be so honored if you took the time to rate and review it. I also encourage you to share it with anyone you know who might benefit from it. I also wanted to remind you that you can find full transcripts, videos, and detailed show notes with hyperlinks for each episode on my website, www.myarthritislife.net. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you want to share your story or wisdom on the podcast, just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you.